ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm Eric Anderson, and I'm continuing our series talking with members of the intelligent design community about their stories, their backgrounds and experiences, why they're involved with intelligent design, the challenges they've faced, and the importance of following the evidence where it leads. In short, why it matters. I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Bijan Namadi, President and Chief Scientist at TELUS One Scientific. Welcome, Bijan. Hi, good to be with you. So, Bishan, normally when we begin a podcast, we list our guests' degrees and you know impressive accomplishments and qualifications, but we'll talk about all those during our time together today. So I'd like yeah. to just go ahead and jump right in, if that's okay. Sure. Sounds good. So, Bijan, a lot of our listeners will remember seeing you in The Privileged Planet. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a great opportunity. And in some ways, uh, it, it's, it was a very memorable time. I really enjoyed being part of that. Great. Let's talk about that a little bit later. But tell me a little bit about your story. Where were you born? Where did you spend your early years? Yeah, I was uh, born in Iran uh, in the uh, 60s. And I spent my early years in Iran, though in 1973, I was in the U.S. for one year when my father came for to get a degree. And then we went back until the uh, the revolution occurred in 79, at which point mm. I, I, I came to the States. Okay. And that was with your whole family together? Or? No, at that point, it was just myself. I, uh, oh. I came to stay with my uncle, who was in Colorado at the School of Mines. And I finished the last year of high school. And at that point, I went to the university in uh, uh, Boulder, Colorado, University of Colorado. Right. Yeah. School of Mines is a very uh, well-known and excellent school in, in their own right, but maybe not quite as well-known as some of the others, but definitely uh, familiar with the Colorado School of Mines. So did you yeah. have any siblings? I have a brother who is uh, who lives in California, and he is very involved in uh, biomedical engineering type things. But but I live now in um, Huntsville, Alabama, so, oh, okay. uh, California some time ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My brother and his wife were living down there for, for a number of years while he was working there. So definitely familiar with that area. So um, what did your parents do uh, when you were young? Well, let's see. Um, you know, I went to uh, the basic public schools that were available in Iran. My parents, you know, as I mentioned, they we, we did come to the States for a year. And my, my father really worked hard at trying to teach me to speak English as a child and would try to get the accent right, which was kind of unusual. Then, uh, well, yeah, I was, I was even just going to mention as you were speaking there, and I don't really hear an accent at all. You have phenomenal English. so Well, I... I thank my father for that. He he really <laughs> he drilled it into me. <laughs> but uh, we also, uh, you know, I was about ten years old or eleven years old, and when we went to Arizona, you know, for that one year when he was getting a master's at the University of Arizona. So I I went to one year of grade school in the U.S. and thoroughly enjoyed it. Was really sad to go back, but but I did go back, and 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 then uh, or, you know about six years later. I was, you know, right just like I'd say one month before the Shah left Iran, I left, uh, mm. you know, uh, as a kid, as a 16-year-old and arrived in Colorado and um, uh, life changed quite a bit at that point. Yeah. And that's because your parents were trying to get you out of the country for safety or? Well, they had intended to send me for school to the U.S. at some point, but it was not for undergrad, it was for graduate. But given the the sort of the instability that was going on, they yeah. figured, you know, with my uncle there, uh, why don't you just go now? 
and then we'll see you later. <laughs> and so they, we, I didn't see my parents pretty much for all of my undergrad years mm. uh, until they came to the States at that time. Oh, okay. They're here now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. My, yeah. my mom passed away in 2000, but, uh, but my dad's here. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So my wife grew up in Southern California and I know there was a large contingent from Iran that came over to that area during those years. Very much so. Um, yeah. I, c- yeah. I could go to some stores and speak in Farsi. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Was, yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. So would you say your parents were more religious or secular in their leanings as you were growing up? As I was growing up, I think they were reverent uh, mm-hmm. Muslims, but I'd say they leaned secular in practice, uh, you know, uh, very okay. much so, actually. And so I sort of grew, grew up the same way. But in fact, in the last year I was in Iran, which was 1979, in all the fervor and excitement about believing in what is true and right, I actually became kind of more decidedly Muslim mm-hmm. uh, in 1979, and just as the time as I was leaving Iran <laughs> and coming to the States. So it was uh, kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So, uh, you know, as you're growing up a teenager, it sounds like you had a very interesting and unique experience there. But in addition to what was going on in the turmoil in the country, what kinds of interests did you have? Did you did you love music or art or sports? Or I, I like uh, music. I, I did really enjoy science. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I had, uh, you know, for an Iranian kid, it was kind of unusual, but I had my little laboratory in the basement and I almost <laughs> caused a fire in the house because of it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I did lots of very interesting things for, for a kid in Iran in those days in that little laboratory. (laughs) Right. uh, Yeah. Right. Okay. So then in, uh, was it 79 you came over, you're saying? Yeah. In 79, I came, uh, to the States first in Colorado and then to CU Boulder, University of Boulder, uh, Colorado Boulder. Okay. That's where you did your undergraduate. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say I credit those particular professors in those particular years in that particular school as being really superb mm. in the amount of devotion they uh, had to, to to really teach well. And so I came out of there with, I would say, a first-rate, world-class education in physics, which really served me well all the way to now. Uh, some some right. years later, I saw one of my professors and I said, you know, I want to thank you for... <laughs> you know, the education I got, because I, I really feel like I, it just, just helped me so much. And he goes, oh, yeah, those years, we were really working hard. It caught me at a good time, right? He said, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, right. so you got a bachelor's in physics, it sounds like. And then where did you go from yes. there? University of Washington in Seattle. And oh, okay. I had wanted to be, yeah, I, I wanted to be a particle theorist. And I applied right. to all these uh, Ivy League schools, and they said, well, should we, should we consider you for anything else if we don't accept you in particle physics? And I had written, no, don't consider me. <laughs> <laughs> so I lost the opportunity for all those applications. But Washington took me. But actually, I ended up changing from ex- a theoretical particle physics, which is what I had wanted, to mm-hmm. experimental. And, and there I, I had a good uh, graduate school career, you know, I worked mostly at a lab at Stanford, uh, at the Stanford Linear Accelerator. Oh, okay. Work, Just a work couple work miles business. up the road from me here. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sand yeah. Hill Road. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. How, when were you, what years were you here? Let's see. First year I was there was probably 84. Last year was probably 90. So 84 to 90, okay. I was at, at Slack. 
Right, right, right. Where where were you living when you were here? Oh, I think in Mountain Mountain View. Uh, yeah, okay. most of the time. All right. yeah. well, you're in, you're in my neighborhood then. So. My goodness. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good great. good deal. Yeah, I'm in Sunnyvale, yeah. so. Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, years later, uh, many years later, I ended up working at the Advanced Technology Center of Lockheed Martin. Mm-hmm. Which is in Sunnyvale, and then they had the their, the think tank is over there in Palo Alto, right? Uh, not far from Slack. So I was I, I came okay. back, and in fact, that was my entry to astrophysics in in some sense because I had been in particle physics, and once I got very interested in ID, I really wanted to shift it a bit because I saw at least based on my own background a, a more easy way for me to get really engaged in these questions by veering into astrophysics rather than staying in experimental particle physics. And right. Well, well, tell me about ID. How did you become interested or first hear about it? Or? Well, I was, I think it was like, well, I was, uh, you know, until, until um, my postdoc years at Cornell, I did not really, I kind of lived a, uh, well, somewhere along the line, I became a Christian. Mm-hmm. And yet when I became a Christian, I did not, you know, so I went from like is being a Muslim to being an atheist and then becoming a Christian. This okay, sort of all right. But hang on. You, 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 you can't skip over this stuff. You, you, <laughs> right. We, we got to go back and pick this up a little bit. Okay. So, so you become kind of a, a committed Muslim when you were getting ready to leave in 79. And then you yeah. did your, what, when did you decide to become a Christian? And was that kind of an intellectual experience or more of a spiritual one? You know, that's interesting. Uh, it was both. It was basically I I had kind of fallen off uh, away from Islam, number one, because the Islamic Republic into which I had put so much hope totally mm. turned into a nightmare. Yeah. And then on top of that, I had sort of encountered the challenges to theistic belief from Darwinism, which mm. I, to my high school age and, you know, early college age mind, it seems very plausible and seemed like it has great explanatory power. And so right. I kind of accepted it. And so by, by graduate school, I was mostly an agnostic atheist, but not, you know, fervently. So I just kind of didn't care. Yeah. And yeah. And then at that point, I, I think I went through a time where I just sort of like meaninglessness of life kind of bothered me. And mm. for a lot of reasons, I became again into, a, you know, search mode. And at that point, I started reading the Bible. And anyway, so I, I was becoming ready to become a Christian. And at some point, I decided to, to give it a try. And uh, I, I never you know, turned back. But even when I did that, I was basically living what we would call a secular sacred split life. In other words, I had mm-hmm. my religious life of going to church and all of that. And then I had my scientific life of being a grad student and, doing my PhD in, in particle physics. And it, the twain did not meet much, not until I was a postdoc at Cornell, at which point I read three books. I think it was three that really changed me dramatically. Uh, it was first an article by Philip Johnson, which mm-hmm. sort of a, it showed up in first things at around 1990, I think. Okay, and it yeah. was essentially the, the paper in which he gave a preview of his major book, Darwin on Trial, which was so mm-hmm. helpful. And and that article really opened my eyes. I thought we had all this thing together with, with Darwinism. What's wrong? And, you know, he explained very clearly. And, you know, Philip Johnson was an extremely articulate speaker and, and writer. And so uh, he really penetrated 
the depths of things beautifully. And so it was very impressive. I, I was kind of shaken. Then somebody recommended I read Evolution, A Theory in Crisis by Michael Denton. So you can chalk me up as the list of people who really got shaken up by that book. It was a monumental Yeah, it's a, it's a long list of people that <laughs> yeah, were influenced yeah, it, by I, Mike's book. Yeah, I think even Philip Johnson himself, I think, yeah. if, I, if I remember, it was. Um, so that was a big book. I also was, I remember one graveyard shift. We were, I was tending an experiment, you know, a particle physics. In particle physics, you have these accelerators where you accelerate particles like matter, antimatter. In, in our, in the, at Cornell, we were doing electrons and positrons, which are anti, antimatter to the electron. And you, they annihilate, and then you essentially find out what happens. You, 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 you have a detector, a thousand ton detector built around the point of collision with all kinds of instrumentation. And you, it runs 24 seven. And so, you know, if you draw the short straw, you end up on the graveyard shift from uh, noon to morning. Uh, nobody wants that one, but I was sitting next to reading books and drinking coffee at your desk. Yeah. Well, they make you, they make you get up and measure, record uh, the numbers every few minutes so you you don't fall asleep. But, uh, I had a friend who is now the chairman of the physics department at Laterna university, Steve Ball. He had a book by Hugh Ross called the fingerprint of God. Mm. Oh, that's curious. You know, I'm very interested in this stuff now. And that book also was one of the, of the three books I mentioned, this was the third. Because in this book, Hugh Ross tells that story of 20th century astrophysics and the first observations and f- first hints that the universe is not static, but had mm. a beginning. And how tooth and nail, the, sci- the greatest scientists of the time, you know, starting with Einstein himself and Eddington and others, you know, really fought the conclusions that both theoretically, at the, you know, the solutions, the Friedman solutions to Einstein's equations, and then, of course, the observations of Hubble were all pointing to a universe that is expanding and therefore had a beginning. And uh, very reluctantly, you know, this was quite an epic story. By, by the you know, 60s, it became sort of inevitable that to, to, to believe that the universe started. And, you know, and we call it now the Big Bang, which, of course, was a derogatory term coined by Fred Hoyle. But uh, that was a, quite a story to me. And, and I, what I learned from these three books, uh, two books and an article, but the article became a book, uh, was basically that, that nature is not neutral. New, nature mm-hmm. speaks and speaks loudly. Nature is evidence of a creator. And it very much looks like its purpose is to do that. It is a arena in which we live and move and have our being, but it's also an arena in which we get glimpse of the transcendent greatness of its creator. And and uh, in every respect, it looks like, you know, the, our, the creator of this world, God really built it this way, that as you search, you marvel at the grandeur of what he has built and made. Yeah, if you're willing to be open to that evidence and look at it, yeah, objectively. So, yeah. so what about, so you're, you're getting interested, you're hearing about this concept of intelligent design or this term that's maybe being thrown around. What, what years is this again? So the, it would have been uh, mid, mid nineties. Okay. And I think uh, to the, the culmination was the conference in at Biola in California in 97 or 96, I think it was 96 called mere creation. And mm-hmm. it was a sort of a seminal moment for me. It was a major moment. In fact, 
that was the first time I uh, saw Michael Denton in person and Philip Johnson was there. And so what prompted you to attend that? How did you hear about it and what prompted you to attend? You know, I think I was on, I was invited to be on the board of editors of a journal that did not live long that Paul Nelson had put together. But it was a wonderful journal. It was called Origins in Design. And mm-hmm. I was very happy to be on that journal as, as part of the editors. And I think because of my involvement in that, I got a letter in the mail at my mailbox at the University of Oklahoma, where I was a professor at the time. And I didn't open this letter for like a month. It sat there in my <laughs> mailbox. And finally, I opened it and like, I didn't know what it was. And I bring it home, showed my wife, hey, Beth, look, you know, there's an invitation to go to this conference. And it goes, and I thought, of course, you know, we don't have the money to go right now or whatever. She goes, you've got to go. You must go to this. And so I did. And it changed my life. It was, uh, you know, I had not realized what I, you know, I mean, by, by the time I registered, I realized what this was. And and I was very excited to go. Yeah, and it was life changing. Just to get all these, they were not my colleagues, but I would say my peers, some of them, you know, like Bill Dembski and, and, Steve Meyer and Paul Nelson were all not much different in my than my age. Yeah. Except they've done a lot more with their life <laughs> than I felt like I had. But, but you, you know, skipped over honestly. some things. <laughs> now, we, we've yeah. got to go back because you, you mentioned three things that you skipped over very quickly. So, first of all, you'd met Paul Nelson at some point in the past previously because you were you were on uh, the show. Well, actually, we, we had not met till that conference. What happened was oh, okay. that Paul Nelson heard about this scientist over there at Cornell, who's a particle physicist. And he kind of knew what what my inclinations were, because I was talking to a mutual friend who was a professor in Indiana, you know, about, you know, my marveling at evidence for design in nature. And so, so here's a physicist who is interested in looking at design Mm -hmm. over there at Cornell. And so Paul sent me a polite letter saying, you know, would you like to be a part of this the editor board and I said, "Yeah," and that's we're, what, we're that's talk, all. We're talking mean. a real written letter in the mail those days. Yeah, I think it was a real letter. <laughs> well, <laughs> in the mail. It might have been an email, but the yeah. other thing was a letter in the mail. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So that's one. And then you mentioned you were at University of Oklahoma. Is that where you were teaching? Yeah. So from uh, a postdoc at Cornell, I went to be uh, sort of a glorified postdoc. It was an adjunct assistant professor or something mm. like that. It was not a tenure track position. Teaching what? Teaching, well, mostly doing research, actually doing okay. research at the synchrotron at Cornell. So I would fly back and forth between New York mm. and Oklahoma. And then occasionally I would teach. And um, then I, you know, at one point I would like, I was really interested in becoming a professor, but at that time, you know, it was very competitive and probably yeah. still is, you know, I think there was a position open in those years. I remember in my field, in my field, there was like 600 applicants for one position. And mm. these guys were all, you know, first rate. Yeah. I had no idea how they're going to pick. And so my director or supervisor at the university at Oklahoma said, look, you know, you've got everything going for you. Just hang in there. You will get a professorship. But by that point, I think I didn't really feel like waiting anymore. And also, I'm not sure actually what all happened. I think I decided I was going to go ahead and try to apply to industry. So I got hired at Lockheed Martin 
Advanced Technology Center in Palo Alto. So came all the way back to California as a result of that. And, okay. and I was there, this had happened like within, I would say almost weeks of attending that conference at Biola. So that's and so big... at that conference, yeah, I had really set my mind, I want to get into this mm. whole field, but I need to switch from particle physics to astrophysics where I felt like I could do things. Make a and so the job, yeah, and the job at Lockheed was, the thing that was really amazing about it I thought that that was going to be in the periphery. I'm going to have to do this astrophysics stuff mm-hmm. on the side. I'm going to go into industry now because of this you know, shift. So about a week into my job, I'm still living in temporary housing after having you know moved from Oklahoma to Palo Alto uh, area. And my boss says, hey, we need you to go to Jet Propulsion Lab, NASA, and attend a conference there uh, on the NASA Origins Program. Mm. And I could not believe my ears. I came to my <laughs> office and I just, you know, just said, Yahoo, you know, because what had basically happened was I, I didn't realize this was basically the job I was really going to be doing. I was Lockheed's representative on a project in NASA that is about the origin of the universe and origin mm. of life. And so I have landed just where I wanted to be. Wow. And so I worked for about 15 years on a world-class space interferometer. And I became one of the top experts of that that mission. It was canceled because of James Webb's problems in those years. They had to essentially concentrate on one major mission. And so my project got canceled, but I had by that point learned an enormous amount about observational astronomy in space, space telescopes and detection of Earth-like planets around other stars, I'd become an expert in, you know, at some level. And so it had all worked out great. And along the way came, you know, the pr- privileged planet occurred during those years, you know. Yeah. So, 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 uh, so Bishan, just, just for, I know that, you know, as, astronomy is something that I do as a hobby, certainly not to your level, but uh, many of us will be, and will understand this and be experienced with this, but maybe for those who aren't, uh, just real briefly, what is an interferometer? A, a normal telescope, it, the, the, if you made a perfect telescope, all the optics would, let's say, are perfect and, and no error mm-hmm. at all. You would still have a problem resolving objects in the sky, limited not by the telescope's imperfections, but its finite size. And it's it's an interplay of the wave nature of light and the finite size of the collecting aperture of the telescope that makes it so that you cannot see things on the sky that are smaller than a certain amount. Mm-hmm. As you make that telescope bigger and bigger, you see smaller and you know finer and finer features. But what if you had to make something that is you know a hundred feet long uh, diameter? Yeah, uh, that starts very being very difficult to send to space. And that's where you can use things called called interferometers, which are, in a sense, you can think of them as formation flying telescopes, where they combine their light very precisely. Uh, there's a lot of detailed requirements to do this right. You can't just combine the light. You have to do it such that the path length of light is preserved to within a fraction of the wavelength of light. But if you do all of that, you end up with the effective performance of a much larger telescope. So the interferometer can can do that. 
So you've got smaller scopes that are placed at a certain distance apart from each other that are gathering light from slightly different angles. And then, and then you're combining those as though you had a massive yeah. scope. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. So great, in this thanks. case, it was a 30 meter space-based interferometer. Mm -hmm. Each telescope at the ends of the 30 meters, uh, not 30 meters. Uh, um, gosh, it's been a few years. It was uh, 10 meters. So 10 meter baseline and mm -hmm. you have half a meter, you know, 50 centimeter telescopes at the ends <clears throat> that are pointing the same way, but they're just spatially separated. And that spatial separation is the key to making uh, its performance what it is. So that was uh, that was the space interferometry mission. And there's uh, a big interferometer in uh, Hawaii, right? It's just ground-based? The Keck interferometer is there, and that's right. Uh, there's yeah. another one that has been in operation in Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, okay. And uh, there are other ones around the world that are ground-based interferometers. But those have a very difficult time reaching the resolutions of a space interferometer sure. because atmospheric uh, yeah, effects. Aberration mm -hmm. and so forth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So now we got to go back just a second and catch the most important thing that you mentioned in passing. <laughs> you mentioned mm -hmm. you were married. <laughs> tell, me, yeah. tell, tell me about uh, when you met your wife and it sounds like she was supportive yeah, was, of intelligent design. Uh, are you going to this conference? Yeah, I was, uh, well, I was in graduate school and I, I, I met my wife, Beth, and she was going out with someone who is an ex-Muslim who thinks he's an atheist and just kind of a little bit lost. <laughs> yeah. And a month before our wedding, and she was a new Christian, but she didn't know better than not to hang around with me. So a month before our wedding, <laughs> though, I announced that I, <laughs> yeah, I announced I had become a Christian too, and she didn't know. And so, so we ended up getting married in 85. And uh, the first uh, few years were my years in graduate school rather challenging. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a tough environment at that time. Yeah, but she she has been really uh, amazing in, in being supportive all these years. And and she kind of is into apologetics now in, in her own right. Uh, she uh, is definitely, you know, very interested in all the, the kinds of things that, you know, I, I talk about. So it's it's been great fun. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. And and we should we should mention here. I know that we're telling your story obviously about how you uh, you know changed your views and to atheism and then Christianity. But we should point out that there are many uh, intelligent design supporters who are Muslim, and certainly it's compatible with with uh, with that Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Speaking of that, what about your family and um, how have they kind of viewed your involvement with intelligent design? I think they're fine with it. I haven't made them you know fervent proponents of ID, <laughs> mm -hmm. but I think that they respect it. You know, they kind of see that it's a, there's a lot there. You're dealing with not just sort of a bunch of platitudes, but you're dealing with a very detailed look uh, using the same, the best tools of thinking and study and, and, and science that is available to anybody, but that there is a different perspective, the perspective that you can have. Yeah, and so and some of the sounds like some of the tools and um, approaches and things that your father encouraged you as a as a young man. So yeah, 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 that's great. That was the first half of my conversation with Dr. Bijan Namadi. In the second half of our conversation, we'll discuss his growing interest in intelligent design, leading to his involvement in the Privileged Planet. Join us again to hear more inspirational stories from those involved in putting forward the remarkable evidence for design in nature and help us make an even bigger impact by sharing a link with a friend. 
For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.